everyone and welcome to a new episode of Rewind, the official podcast of the History Society of St. Stephen's College. The podcast aims to make history and its various aspects more accessible and interactive to facilitate simplified conversations between students, historians, writers, academicians, and curators. Today, we have with us Dr. Rotuna Mozumdar. Dr. Rotuna Mozumdar is a historian of modern India with a focus on Bengal. Her writings span histories of gender and sexuality, Indian cinema, and especially art cinema and film music, as well as modern Indian intellectual history. Dr. Mozumdar also writes in post-colonial history and theory. Her interests in the culture and aesthetics of mass democracy led her to study cinema, and in particular, Indian cinema. Her third book, Art Cinema and India's Forgotten Futures, Film and History in the Post-Colony, is an analysis of global art cinema in independent India. It is also a book about art cinema as a mode of doing history in a post-colonial setting. We are honored to have you with us here today, Dr. Mozumba. Good evening, ma'am. So, as students of history, while your book does deal with many themes, one of the themes we want to explore is one of your central themes, which is the use of cinema as a mode of history writing. In the Mm -hmm. period of post-colonial India that you're exploring, was cinema the only such medium? If so, why? That's a really good question. It's a very thoughtful question. And it allows me to clarify some of the stakes in my book. Now, I think one thing that I want to clarify at the outset is that the book does not claim that art cinema is a mode of doing history because it is merely representing the post-colonial present. In other words, to call something historical has to be more than the question of representation. If the task is only that of representation, then your uh, your question is it's totally valid right the, uh, literature theater any of the other arts um can have very serious representational claims that's for sure now the reason why i was making the claim that uh, art cinema is a mode of doing his- history in the post in the post colony and i was careful not to use the word writing because obviously filmmaking is filmmaking it's 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 separate from the exercise of writing is because as historians we eventually uh, we eventually think about time history is ultimately a way of engaging the question of temporality of time and i thought that in the body of films that uh, that one is designating i'm designating as art cinema uh, there were serious efforts to to deal with this question of of postcolonial temporality, to ask the question of well, what does it mean to be um, to be in a in a new in a new historical period after uh, the end of colonial rule and after the partition of India? In that sense, um, you know, what kind of a break, if any, does it signal? Is that time the time of modernization only? Is that the time of development only? Or do we think about time as itself multiple and fractured? So it was this particular attunement to thinking about time in a complex manner through a new medium film that uh, I think gives art cinema, or, or in my eyes at least, qualifies art cinema as a mode of historical thinking. So the second part of your question, uh, is this something that's exclusive to to film? Um, now, I would wager that because of film's specific nature as as you know, because it's it's a durational medium. This is something that I think is peculiar to film in a way that it's not to the other arts. And um, now, whether or not, Every filmmaker was actually showing us showing similar sensitivities to the question of time, I think is open and debatable. My project here was obviously to do with a certain body of films and 
well, it, it, I was referencing a particular body of filmmakers. Now, I hope that the book will be an invitation to others to consider whether this can be applicable to other cinematic works. Absolutely, ma'am. Thank you so much for clarifying the difference between history and historical representation and historical writing, per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and historical representation is it's very important. You know, it's it's also something. I mean, first of all, it's a very complex endeavor. It involves it involves certain choices because when we say representation, it's never simple. It's a question of well, what we are representing, what we are leaving out. So I think it's its own kind of thing. And these the the films that I write about also have certain representational claims for sure. But I've I'm arguing that uh, what qualifies them, them as history is always representation plus this other aspect of actually very self-consciously thinking about the question of historical time and thinking about issues of transition, thinking about questions of break, thinking about questions of linear times, myth mythical times, times of modernity. I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very influenced by uh, by Reinhard Koselleck's writings and his notion of a noisite, a new time. And I was trying to weave in some of those concerns into uh, into my my research on on art films. Ma'am, so you uh, I'll take up from the last thing you mentioned, art films. So you make a very important uh, distinction between art films and commercial cinema or as was perceived in that time. So there was this uh, constant conscious effort to create good cinema as opposed to commercial cinema. So can we unquestionably, I mean, it seems like a very elitist concept of just designating good and bad as commercial and art. But so can we unquestionably just declare it to be so? given the disparate constituents of the audience body of any post-colonial nation, was such an elitist, possibly elitist division inevitable? Right. So again, I mean, you know, it's a very thoughtful question and you, you made a very fine distinction there for which I'm both grateful and I'm deeply appreciative of it, which is that, I mean, this distinction, art and commercial, good and bad, they're not mine. You know, they, they are stuff that I'm seeing in the in the archive, right? In the historical record. And um and the first part of the book is really about how this category, art cinema, comes to first of all, how it arises, how it arrives in the Indian scene, and then how it consolidates itself. And one of the arguments I make is that even as it consolidates itself, it also splinters into a whole array of other categories like political cinema, like uh, uh, the avant-garde, um, in like new cinema, you know, and because people actually make a distinction between art cinema and the new Indian cinema. So there's all of that happening. And 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 that actually signals when you when you're competing about nomenclature, when you're competing about how to name something, for me, that actually signals that there are major disagreements on the ground about how you're going to designate a particular object. So I think your concern, or my concern even, that is this is this a very elitist maneuver? It's actually one that's being shared by a lot of people who were writing and thinking about films then. So, for example, you know, Mrinal Sen would be a very good example of this. I mean, he and uh, another of his colleagues, uh, Arun Kaul, wrote a manifesto for the new Indian cinema. And there they were marking their distance in some ways from uh, from people in the 1950s and so forth, even though Sen's own filmmaking career actually began in the 50s. But his, uh, I mean, in many ways, he, he, he considers his own work, say, from the time of Akash Kushum and Bhuvan Shom onwards, as marking a break from his earlier practice. So the aspiration for good cinema is purely that it's an aspiration and when you the moment you you insert words such as good uh, 
you're actually making a value judgment right i mean it's it's so it's something that people are doing very consciously they're 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 making an attempt they're both making a judgment call and arguing that well we don't have a body of films that we will we would call good by you know by some global standards and there they're really looking at well both at uh, hollywood films as well as european films and eventually you know that canon just grows wider and wider and you come to include uh, latin american cinema iranian cinema i mean they're also canon building at the same time their own films but obviously none of this is set in stone and they they include some indian films like do bigaza mean um so sometimes you know there are some indian films that come in uh, into into the mix um chetan anand's films uh, for example nichanagar you know those films would qualify but the moment you insert categories such as good or not so good or bad what it signals is that there are struggles now on the ground about a given object and up until then i don't think that film was and when i say then i mean the the time that the film society movement sort of takes off in a big way up until then film was not considered worthy of even having those kinds of arguments about i mean obviously there have been cinephiles ever since there have been cinema but the fact that cinema is a, is a serious object of study that you could actually that there was this urge to watch films from elsewhere not simply to watch them but to also think about them to consider important social and political questions with them and then uh make certain interventions in your own craft that that kind of serious engagement with film is is what i'm trying to or what i see as them trying to pack into this concern about the category of good now did it include everybody for sure no i mean um as as you know it, it it's a project of 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 making distinction in the in the peer bourdieu sense so it's not it's not inclusive but it actually has a vision that is and that it, so that's why i say in the first part of the book that in 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 its early days the film society movement as well as art filmmakers had a vision that they were somehow participating with the new nation state in the project of building a new citizenry so their aspirations were egalitarian their aspirations were were progressive and their aspirations frankly were also pedagogical that people are not used to watching films like this so we must teach them did they succeed um yes and no but i'll stop there i tend to go on so no ma'am that's absolutely fine so you used a very interesting word pedagogical and that's perhaps also evident in the formation of national committees around these films and the making of these films or to encourage these films so mm-hmm. and there is also from what i understood a notion of the masses quote unquote themselves being dissatisfied with the fare that was being served to them Mm-hmm. so how accurate were these diagnoses of the national committees or mary seaton or even the cine clubs where they believed that there was this general dissatisfaction with commercial cinema and the masses could appreciate finer cinema but were being mm-hmm. fed some random material that they were not happy with either so was this an imposition of sorts was this putting their was this them putting their words into the masses mouth per se i mean the expression again the expression mass is always um it, it it's always um a contentious word right i mean who is the mass so let me answer the question in two parts so in so far as the film societies are concerned um so the first one there were there were a couple of film societies in bombay in the pre independence period but they were really you know those were basically a group of people who worked in sort of uh british run corporate em- enterprises that came together to occasionally watch films but a sort of india driven indian driven film society effort was really the one uh that began with the calcutta film society in 1947 in october of 
Now, and 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 from there it it spreads. It spreads quite widely. Um, and as I as I say in chapter three of the book, let me just remind myself actually what the what some of those figures are. Um, hang on one second. So um, so I write over here that um, in the next decade, meaning the fifties. Uh, so in 47, the Calcutta Film Society is set up. And then by the 60s, the, the film society movement had spread to Calcutta, Bombay, Delhi, Madras, Patna, and Roorkee. And in 1959, they came together to form a body called the Federation of Film Societies. By the 1960s, I write, film societies had spread beyond metropolitan areas to small towns across India. And from six in 1959, there were 23 in 1964, 111 in 1971, 169 in 1978, 216 in 1981. So that is a considerable, it's a considerable spread. Now you could push back and say that we're talking about a country of millions. So, you know, how can we declare a movement to be uh, either successful or even representative with a hundred, hundred thousand or a hundred and fifty thousand members? And I would then venture to suggest that true. I mean, not every village, not every panchayat actually has a has a cine club, but the people who are coming into these these film societies are by no means, you know, they're, they're ordinary people. They're people like you and me. They're not people who anybody would know. I mean, some of them then go on to become filmmakers or cinematographers or um, art directors, but not everyone. The majority of them actually came in for their love of cinema. And it's thanks to them that we have an archive of the attitudes towards film and towards the cinema in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, because, you know, another thing, Pratyusha, is that, I mean, this is something that actually make I mean, it just it makes me feel so humble and grateful that they wrote so much. I mean, not only did they watch films, they wrote enormous amounts about what they thought of those films, how they came to acquire those films, under what conditions they watched those films, then where all they took those films. So I have in chapter three, a discussion of the Nina Samchitra Samaj, which is which is an organization that actually begins with the theater, which KB Subarna begins. But then they also expand their activities into the realm of film. And they take it, they organize this rural film festival at, at this village called Hegadu, and I describe it in the book. Now, yes, there is an elitist gesture there that, oh, we are bringing films to, to the villages. But my question also is why not? Because sometimes the way that uh, an uninitiated viewer watches things or will then you know, comment on those those films can often change the way I view those films. So if you actually look at the Latin American cine scene, ultimately that's what Solanas and Jettino were doing. You know, they said they described their filmmaking as an act before it was a film. So they would show the film, this is Hour of the Furnaces, they would show it to different audiences and sometimes they would pause it, audiences would react and then that would make its way back into the film. Now, granted, nothing like that was happening in India, but the earliest instances of crowdsourced films began with film societies. So John Abraham's Odessa um, is, is a very good example. I mean, John Abraham's Amarian, for example, was a crowdsourced film. So that's the first part of the response, you know, that, that these people were idealistic they were not economic elites but they had aspirations to distinguish themselves culturally and that is an elitist aspiration now to the business of national committees national committees are you know they're faceless bureaucracies and there's a particular way in which they address the population right 
And some of them, I mean, if you read these reports, some of these reports are quite hilarious. I mean, just even in the way in which that they are talking about the the population of the post-independent nation. But again, I mean, you know, their goal over there is, oh, we're a new nation. One of the things that we can do is improve the quality of, of, of our masses, by which I guess they mean a modicum of education, a modicum, and, and, and of course it's top-down. It's very, very top-down. They have, I mean, here they are talking about creating very cultured viewers. They do nothing to to actually set up art house uh, or to set up, you know, art house cinemas. How many does does India have even today? So these are bureaucrats, not all of them. I mean, they're well-meaning for the most part, but there is definitely a disconnect, definitely a disconnect. But I'm also a firm believer that there's no such thing as, oh, you know, this film will be too much for an uninitiated viewer to handle because it hasn't, it didn't happen in our country, again, given its size and diversity. But look at, you know, look at a place like France. I mean, you know, the French New Wave was a highly popular phenomenon. Everybody watched Godard and Truffaut. In fact, it's interesting that, say, uh, Shotoji Theroy's films, by and large, they were always a hit in Kolkata. Now, the question is, yeah, did people in the districts watch them? Don't think so. But how many cinema halls did districts have in those days? Maybe there'd be one. Did they actually exhibit Pothir Pachali? No. So this becomes then a question of the organization of the industry. So all too often we hear like words and shudder that, oh my God, this is such an elitist project. But there's also an elitism in our gesture of suggesting that, oh, uh, thus and such person without formal education will not be able to appreciate something because it's too dense or too highfalutin for them. I think film society members at the time would say, well, give them the option and then we shall see. Another very long-winded response to a sharp, short question. No. You have to cut me off. Absolutely not, ma'am. Uh, ma'am, so you uh, drew on several very interesting concepts, one of which is the new nation and a nation in the making, as well as new wave cinema. So two new things together so and ma'am you've spoken about in your book how wonderfully new new indian new wave cinema was but mm -hmm. to come back to some elements of the previous question how indian was it and uh, mary seaton in good cinema sometimes uses the word or as a qualifying criterion uses universal so how universal was it and how indian was indian new wave cinema uh, what I mean to say by this very rambling question is how interstitial were these new developments given the, uh, as you put it, the Bengaliness of Ghatok, or, or rather as Shotojit Rai puts it, the Bengaliness of Ghatok and mm -hmm. uh, the extended scope of Mrinal Shin's uh, Calcutta trilogy and his universal metaphors. Mm -hmm. You know, we're living in a moment when I think there's a drive to produce a very top-down drive to produce what Indian is. Equally, I think uh, there's a pushback against that that drive to 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 define what Indian is. Right, both things are happening. It's possible that we hear more about the top-down drive than the pushback, and. And I think that the expression Indian has always contained within it a variety of aspirations, a variety of anxieties about what, what it is. And oftentimes the concrete instantiation of that, that, that multiplicity, which actually constitutes what... Uh, hang on just one second, I want to shut my door. One second. The concrete instantiation of what uh, what Indian might be 
is to be found in, say, the region. So when we look at Indian new wave films, for the first time, really, on this scale, you see places that you've never really seen at length on, on, on the silver screen. So, for example, in Sara Akash, you see Agra. And it's not an Agra of the Taj Mahal. You know, it's not as if, if you watch Sara Akash, it's actually the lanes of Agra. It's those, you know, it's a house. There's a lot of stuff that happens on the roof of the house. If you watch Uski Roti, it's the dusty uh, roads of a Punjabi village. If you watch Bhuvan Shom, it's shot in, 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 in Gujarat. Um, you know, so, and I can, I mean, the list goes on, like, you know, there are some, some films which are set in, in uh, Bombay, there are some uh, films that are set in Calcutta, but these are not the way we are used to seeing these, these cities. We see Odessa, we see Assam, and all of these constitute the Indian. So, my first response to this business of Indian is to would be to argue that there's a way in which the region comes into play in uh, in Indian cinema uh, that is unprecedented. I mean, you know, I didn't mention so the 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 Kerala filmmakers Aravind and uh, Gopalakrishnan, and with each of these, I mean, there's of course Sham Benegal. With each of these filmmakers, you get you get a different uh, manifestation of what Indian might mean. Now, going back to that description that Ray had of Ghatok as being much more Bengali than I am, and I think he's he's on to something. Obviously, I think Ghatok is actually someone who deliberately, deliberately, and in a political gesture performs a certain kind of parochialism that resists his inclusion into the category we might call world cinema. Now, let me explain that because that's a dense formulation that he's, I said that he's deliberately performing a parochialism that resists his, his inclusion into the category world cinema. Now, of course, Ghatak is the darling of world cineasts. Now, everybody is, you know, is talking about Ghatak. But the point is, in order to truly appreciate Khatak, I mean, of course, there's amazing camera work. There's a, you know, there's a tremendous use of, of, of lighting, of particular sonic effects. But there is also a lot of particularity. A lot of particularity. Um, I mean in order to, I think, fully appreciate Kotok, you'd have to steep yourself in the way that he did into an entire cultural tradition that includes, um, you know, that includes Rabindranath Tagore, that includes uh, other literatures, the progressive lit literary traditions of Bengal, that includes a certain reception of, of Marxism in Bengal, a certain theatrical tradition in Bengal. And, and then you see the various, you know, the, the, the nuances of his films. Because, I mean, imagine telling, telling a Jean-Luc Godard that, oh, it doesn't really matter if you get French or not. It doesn't matter if you get the details of French history. You know, you'd still appreciate him. It's true on one level. But I think you would understand and appreciate a lot more if you educated yourself on in, in, in the context. And I think that in some ways that's something that is what Ray was signaling. That the fact that Seton included Chotujitrai and not Riti Ghatok in her canon of Indian filmmakers is Seton's inability to see the genius of someone like Ghatok. But to see the genius of someone like Ghatok, I think also requires an investment to to educate yourself, to attune yourself to some of the things that are that are not immediately obvious. Everyone will tell you, oh, those whiplash sounds in Megheda Katara are so phenomenal. But, you know, what was he doing with, with, with uh, Uma Shongit, for example, in Megheda Katara, which you barely hear, which kind of reverberates 
in in on the soundtrack what's the significance of that why did he use at that climactic moment in the film a kind of song which is or a, a genre of song which is associated with durga puja i mean that's a very ironic turning on its head the the whole mythology the whole durga mythology that this is a society which worships the mother goddess but here you have a girl who's being turned out of the house who's being asked to leave the house with splatters of blood on her face from tuberculosis on the same day i mean this is a a girl who was born on the day of jogodhatri pujo and we have this wailing uma shongit playing in the background where it's manoka asking her daughter durga to come you know to come to her now we know that nita is actually coming closer and closer to her death so it's a very ironic reversal of the entire mother goddess myth and unless you know this i don't think the poignance of megeta katara or indeed its political kind of punch uh will really hit you and that's what i think ray meant when he said much more bengali so to respond to your question i think these people would claim or they would aspire to be universal filmmakers but not by diluting their particulars you know so now i think when you look at the contemporary filmmaking we have extremely i mean most people are highly skilled and i think everybody is doing realist uh, filmmaking moinak bishash actually writes about this very nicely now the films of the 50s 60 70s they were very flawed films not all of them had the same level of technical competence but i think they were aspiring to enter the canon of global art cinema as very particular regional and therefore indian films if that makes any sense absolutely ma'am um it's very interesting how you juxtapose their particularities and their universal universalities at the same time so staying on that theme ray makes another very interesting comment where he states that bhuvan shom is essentially old fashioned and indian are we to understand these words being synonymous to him so is that sim- symptomatic of an old sort of parochial mindset that we have that he has in juxtaposition to sahani saying uh, that ray's attitude towards the new wave is symptomatic of underdeveloped countries so mm-hmm. they both have this very interesting understanding of underdeveloped and old fashioned and indian at the same time right. how are we to understand that first of all pratusha you i mean thank you again for having read the book so carefully i mean it's so gratifying to the author of a book to to be reminded of these details um that said i i mean since you have read it so carefully you also know that in that chapter on on the indian new wave one of the things i do is document the way people were essentially fighting with each other and ray's remarks about bhuvan shom you know big bad bureaucrat uh, liking rustic village bell was not generous it was not becoming of of who he was uh because i mean he was he was suggesting that oh there's nothing new about the film because this is essentially a story of a city man going to the village meeting this beautiful uh, rural girl and you know a, a transformation happening because you know, that's the story that's what happens say in jungli a film that's made at the same time there are any number of films actually where you have this trope but the, the thing is as i say in the book uh, and i have a lengthy discussion of why bhuban shom feels new why because you know utpal dat there's something there's something packed into his presence as the big bad bureaucrat and i actually have the discussion of a particular scene in bhuvan shom which i think of as a very it's a highly non sexualized but highly erotic scene and it's almost like an epiphanic moment in the film i mean that's what leads to the transformation and i think that that's what 
elevates the viewing experience of Bhuvan Shom into something that one might call new. And I mean, of course, there were a lot of new techniques and so forth that were used in the film. Sen uses animation. Sen uses the the he he uses a lot of people. I mean, there are new new actors. He also makes use of his affiliation with uh, the films division at the time to bring in some of some of their new talents. So, in terms of personnel, in terms of technique, there is a lot that is new in the film. But ultimately. You know, this experience of newness is to recognize something different in that which is very familiar to you. So it's, I mean, and each time the same tired trope of the city man going to the village, being transformed, each time that trope is repeated, it's never repeated in the same identical fashion. There's always an illusion between the repetition. I mean, so in a delusion vein, you could say there's repetition and difference. Deepesh Chakrabarti actually has a very interesting article about it. Uh, it's called uh, it, it's called Belatedness as Possibility, I believe. It's in his uh, Crisis of Civilization book. And I use that in the context of uh, the second chapter. Going back to Shahani and Ray, I think Shahani, I mean, these younger filmmakers with very good reason felt dissed by Ray in his Foreigner Quarter, that essay, that was a very harsh essay where he really made, uh, as a, you know, as a senior filmmaker, he made some very ungenerous comments about uh, Shahani and Call. He describes uh, M.S. Satyu and Sham Benegal as good storytellers. But I think at the time, given given his his stature in the Indian film scene, those comments would, I mean, if I was a young filmmaker, I would have reacted in exactly the same way. But since I wasn't on the scene then, as a historian, I can actually look back to those polemics. And what I glean from them is what I said earlier also, that this was a time when film mattered. And it didn't only matter in the way that, uh, let's say you have, uh, I don't know, uh, a film like Padmavat, and a group of people go and uh, burn down the theater and you know ask for it to be censored. It's not like that. Film mattered because you were you were actually able to to debate your differences, to actually stake your claims about what it means to be Indian, what good, 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 good cinema means, uh, what is the status of experimentation in art, where will funding come from? So you were having substantive debates, and nobody was out to muffle the other. Nobody was. I mean, this was actually it was a it was a public space where people were probably not mincing their words, but it was also not about silencing the other. So my lesson from film polemics of those times is, is almost reminding oneself how to debate, how to debate in ways where, you know, you don't, you don't destroy your opponent in ways that they, they, they'll never be able to speak again. Sure, they were sometimes maybe not listening to one another, but eventually, you know, there's a space for Ray, there's also a space for Shani. There's a space for Mrinal Shen, there's a space for Avdar um, Kaul. Um, so I think that's what I, I glean from the film polemics. It's not, it, it wasn't gladiatorial. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't about the complete and ultimate annihilation of the other. And silencing is a very interesting concept in all sorts of art and in between art and film producers in particular. So and with especially with regard to funding, because if without funding, you can't make a film. So ma'am, how would you uh, conceptualize the interest of the government in, at this time in financing films and financing art and establishing this qualitative standard for the same? Could this 
indirectly also work as a silencer of sorts could this limit the themes the questions that could be addressed in cinema i mean again it's a see uh, the this is why i think the period of the indian new wave is so fascinating and uh, particularly the the period that bk karanjia takes over the film finance corporation as its head i mean there are many um, it it was actually a coming together of a lot of people who had certain visions for indian cinema so if you look at many of the filmmakers they funded so before karanjia came in you know it was very random so um re got money from them so did chantaram uh so all kinds of people were 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 being funded by the film finance corporation then during karanjia's time he wanted to promote new talent and it's also the time that you have somebody like pk nayar in the film archives and i want to i mean i want to think of or i've tried to think of this institutional history together i mean in a separate it's not included in the book but elsewhere i've actually written about the project of the national film archives of india and and i think it's very important that we think of the national film archives we think of uh, nfai the film institute which is now the film and television institute and the film finance corporation together and benegal was really the only filmmaker who never went to the film finance corporation he always found uh, other sources for his for his films i mean even somebody like adu gopalakrishnan who eventually who actually tried to fu- to fund his films through chitralekha which is the film society that he and kulatul baskaran nayar set up uh even he eventually you know gets funding from the state uh, corporations but at staying with the film finance corporation for the moment it was a very interesting moment because people who no one had ever heard of were also getting money i mean some of them were graduates of the film and tel- of the film institute but if you look at their uh, their records and if it's it's staggering to see how many films were made but were never released they you know they just sat and they just remained in those cans and it would be i have no idea where they are frankly i mean it would be a very interesting exercise to see what some of those films were what i mean you know whether they were half finished um what remains of them that said when we one thing i should clarify i've written about it in the book but i'll i'll say it again when we say state sponsored cinema we need to be very clear about what we mean the film finance corporation merely gave loans there were subsidized loans of a very small amount i think uh, 3 lakhs or something to uh, sometimes it was less than that also to various filmmakers so there was an expectation that this would be repaid and that is that's pretty draconian you know if you are making an uski roti and this is not mind you this is not this is pre internet so is this pre youtube how do you break even in the absence of uh in, in the absence of theaters that are going to show your films so it's not as in france it's not like the new german cinema the new french cinema where the state is completely subsidizing you here you're actually getting low interest loans and and that that's a pretty draconian measure so state sponsored means very different things even that little window of support that people had that ends when uh, there is the restructuring with which i end the book you know when the nfdc comes into being and really the first film they fund is atan rose gandhi pray why <laughs> i mean you know and and so it's almost like we began with precarity we've gone back to precarity there was just that blip in the middle and even there people will say oh state sponsored cinema state sponsored cinema but it's really i mean a group of filmmakers 
young, many of them sort of debut, making their debut features were getting some money from the state as loans to make their ventures. And then it goes back again to, you know, to making these great grand things, which I'm going to make statements about India's greatness to the world. <laughs> so, um, and that said, yes, there was an expectation that some of the FFC funded films would go to film festivals. And, you know, that's a whole different history, which I don't really get into in the book, like the, the history of festivals in India. And, uh, you know, some people wrote about how that could lead to coteries and so forth. But I didn't venture there, so nor will I do it now. My main point is to alert ourselves to the meaning of what state-sponsored means. And and that too, I mean, you know, because that's, what I want to say is, why won't the state sponsor? Why not? Why will the state not sponsor education? Why will the state not sponsor cinema? Why will the state not sponsor the arts? I mean, are they only going to sponsor science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM? And is everything going to be private? Um, I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're tending that way. But when people make those remarks, looking at that period, my response would be, hell yeah, they should. Uh, thank you for that very, very important clarification, ma'am. I must confess, I too did not think of it in this way as state-sponsored being different from state-sponsored. So that was a very important distinction and I'm glad that yeah. listeners have got that clarified. Because, I mean, just look at some of our public universities, right? And, I mean, see when an institution like JNU was founded, the kind of, I mean, you'd have students come to JNU from institutions such as yours, uh, St. Stephen's or presidency or, you know, so-called elite institutions, but you would also have first-generation students come from many different parts of the country. And, and we've seen you know, again, this is not my field, so I wouldn't want to sort of say too much on it. My my information merely comes from what I read in the newspapers. Why can't we have hostels that are subsidized? Why can't we have education that is subsidized? Why would you have to pay an arm and a leg? Similarly, like, what's wrong with, with subsidizing uh filmmaking or indeed any other uh, kind of, of 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 artistic work i mean you know why should all the money be funneled into business administration or engineering or i mean you get my drift right <clears throat> so sometimes i want to even if i could go back in time and ask the detractors then that what's your problem why wouldn't it? Why don't you want to value a humanities orientation more? And within the humanities, I include, I include film. As students of history, we absolutely understand, ma'am, where you're coming from. But and my apologies if this makes for a very abrupt break from what we were discussing. But uh, to bring it for a while, so so. Uh, no. To bring it to a very particular aspect, and I must confess, pandering almost entirely to my interests. So both uh, Shotojitrai and Ritik Ghatok use Hindustani classical music and Rovindra Shongit extensively in their film work. So how do their ideas of filmmaking, how does their provenance, their ideas, as you said, the uh, structures in which they are steeped, how does that show through in their differences in the use of uh, Hindustani classical and Rabindra Shongi? That's a tough question. So, uh, you know, Shotojitrai, of course, most extensively uses classical music in, um, in Jolshagar. And there it's, uh, it's Vilayat Khan who does it. I mean, both of them actually also have documentaries uh, on 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 classical music classical musicians but by and large ray i think 
aside from, you know, I keep saying Ray and Rai. Anyway, let's say Shotojit Rai. He, I think he uses more Rovindra Shongit. I'm trying to think now. And then, of course, you know, there is his own composition, right? I mean, he also composes uh, so much of his music uh, himself, particularly as, as, as we go, as we sort of move forward in his filmmaking, he he composes so much of his music. I mean, in the beginning there was Ravi Shankar, uh, with with the Tarshanai in in Pachali. Then there's Vilayat Khan in Jolshaghar. And after that, it's by and large Rubindra Shongit, but it's really his own music direction. With Riti Khotok, actually, often classical music and uh Rubindra Shongit appear in the same film. So, for example, in um, in Megheta Katara, for example, he uses both. Like there's the uh, there's the rag Hamsadhwani, as well as uh, as well as Robin Rashongit, as well as Baul songs. So, I mean, I think in some ways, Ghotok's the musical repertoires he draws on are are very very diverse. I mean, and I think really it his use of this kind of diversity of musical uh, notations and musical traditions is best exemplified, at least for me, in Shubhanarika, where you have uh, the Miyaki Malhar as well as uh, uh, Robindra Shongit being used. So was your question, I mean, clarify the question for me. Was it really about the use of these different musical traditions or, or what was the question? Uh, Ma'am, I sort of meant it as does their use of music indicate a certain difference in who they were as people, how they conceptualize films, filmmaking in general, or was it just a sort of coincidence in the way that they use their films, um, use their music? Okay, no, 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 no. It's not the latter. I think it's definitely the former, which is that music was absolutely vital to music was absolutely vital in their project of what I mentioned earlier in this in their project of seeking distinction for their films. So, I mean, I'll, let me answer this anecdotally. So, you know, there is this Koruna um, Bandopadhyay, the uh, actor who plays uh, Shorbojaya in Pothir Pachali. If you read her reminiscences, she actually says that she was completely nonplussed when she saw the first rushes or, or when she saw the first uh, screening of Pothir Pachali because in that scene where Horihar comes home and asks, where is Durga? And Shorbojaya breaks down, right? And at that moment that she breaks down, recall, we don't hear her crying. We actually hear Ravi Shankar's Tarsa and I playing. And Corona Bandhapadhyay was totally nonplussed because she had cried in that scene. And it was Ray's executive decision that he was he was going to not use the soundtrack of her her weeping. Instead, he was going to use the 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 sound of the Tarshanai. And I think that that made for one of the most memorable. Uh, sequences in 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 the history of cinema. Similarly, if you think of uh, that tiny tiny sequence in the beginning of Charu Lata, where uh, Madhavi Mukherjee Charu is going through her bookshelf, and she's looking at a series of books, all of which happen to be composed written by Bonkim Chandra, and you know she sings to herself. Bonkim, 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 bonkim. <laughs> now that's a tiny little musical interlude. That's just Ray's own doing. What does it communicate to us? This woman who just has hours at her disposal. You know, she's just deeply lonely. Deeply lonely. I mean, everyone talks about the long tracking shots of Charulata. But think of what work that tiny little musical interlude does. It establishes, I mean, sort of conclusively, the, I mean, the brutal isolation and loneliness she experiences, from which then the rest of the film's dramatic 
tension will unfold. Similarly with Ghatok, when in Meghita Katara, uh, you know, Nita tells her brother that teach me a song that I can perform in, in our sister's wedding night. I mean, she basically cuts short a conversation that they were having where the brother says that, how long will you keep, keep suffering? I mean, if you're going to be so self-destructive, I have nothing to say. And she says, teach me a song. And recall, this is, I mean, in the, that's when they sing Jirate Mordu Arguli. It's a, it's a Rubindra Shongit. But I have always, you know, that, that during that song sequence, I mean, I have made the case uh, that, that during that song sequence, there are certain queer intimations in Ghotok cinema, which are not realized in the film, but they are nevertheless there. They're nevertheless there that actually, you know, burst forth. It's also where I think this alternation of temporalities occur because during that song, or frankly, when when uh, Anil Chatterjee is, is, is singing his classical music, you really forget that you're sitting in a ramshackle refugee colony in, you know, in Calcutta. Or when Madhubi in, in Shubhanurekha is performing the Miyake Malhar on a night of torrential rain. And, um, or, you know, when her little boy says to her that, um, you know, when will we go to our new house? And their surroundings are really, they're, they're just awful. And she tells him, listen and you shall see. And then she breaks into a Tagore song. Now it's about the most, it's the most ridiculous place to sing Dhaner Khete I mean, it's just so, you know, the poverty of that place is so grinding. But the dialogue there is so interesting where she says, listen and you shall see. So it's almost, you know, close your eyes, give yourself over to the music and you will see. So, and that's where there's this dramatic alternation of temporalities that takes place, where the narrative of the film might keep us in the grinding poverty, frustration of the post-colonial present. But there is another present because the song is also within the film. It's also in that present, but in that present, you're elevated and you're taken somewhere completely different. So I think that in the way that they use music, both classical music, Rovindra Shongit, religious music, Baul songs, even La Dolce Vita. Uh, uh, so in each of them, they are very considered. None of this is accidental. None of this is accidental. And here I want to say that I think this holds for, uh, you know, this holds for much of Hindi cinema too. I think that there are, I've written about this um, you know, I have a essay where I actually compare the the utopian and dystopian imagination of Shri Charsubis and Megera Katara. But in both, music performs a very critical function of uh, of giving us a sense of temporality, and I call it "Song of the Citizen." You know, Juta Hai Japani. So um, I think. In, in Indian cinema, generally, I think music performs a very vital function, very vital function, and more, more work needs to happen on the songs. I mean, a lot has been written. There's some wonderful work out there, but I don't think it's nearly enough. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Ma'am, I agree completely with the fact that with your conceptualization of the way that Indian filmmakers use music, but I never thought about it for so-called commercial cinema. And that's a very, very interesting intervention to make, ma'am. Uh, so bringing it back to a larger context, and this will probably be our last question of the session, cinema or any art, we can arguably, as we've discussed, it plays a pedagogical role in shaping 
a consciousness per se whether it's a national consciousness or an individual consciousness they are vehicles for representation for change but that in itself must have changed over the years with globalization with technology so now when as you said now that's a uh, platform such as netflix are available now that youtube is available and cinema is more accessible perhaps does it retain in your words a historicizing impulse um i think so because again i mean if anything see i first of all there are more people making films i mean there's a certain way in which there has been a democratization of the technology and uh and with that we're actually seeing we're seeing work from social groups and constituencies who are bringing their own experiences to bear on their filmmaking so the kind of um the kind of futures that uh we the kind of futures we see in the film work say of um, somebody like paranjit or nagraj manjule is very different from the kind of film futures we might have had when um when there were no dalit filmmakers now i think there has to be and this is again an area of of emerging scholarship i think to ask well what exactly is that aesthetic in the same way that uh some scholars will say that you know there's a there's a way in which a female filmmaker brings a different kind of sensibility and a different so a, so for example uh you know agnes varda's work will give us a different sense of what it means to be french than her male peers that said though we also know that these platforms whether it's netflix or amazon or whoever uh z the fear is that uh you know they also function on certain algorithms and they function on what they think is going to be successful and that can often overdetermine the possibilities that uh overdetermine the possibilities and can also limit um the creative potential of 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 a lot of filmmakers so for example you know the way that say i mean did i like fandry as much as i i mean fandry i think was a brilliant film jhund i i think is a very interesting film but already you see you know this it, it, it there's a difference in in its tonality in its uh in its imaginative breadth in the importance given to the way in which the narrative unfolds and and i think as we think about film now we have to bear in mind both the possibilities opened up by platform technologies but also not be blind to the fact that ultimately there's a, pro- a logic of profit in the marketplace at work and i'm not saying that the latter is unimportant of course not but those are certainly considerations that can lead to a certain homogeneity in what constitutes a good film and i sh- i hope that it doesn't restrict the scope of experimentation or doesn't tame every experimental effort and um yeah i think i'll stop there we'll stop there i mean because again you know this is you're asking me to i mean i think about this a lot but it's not stuff that i've properly researched and worked on so this was purely in a speculative vein thank you so much ma'am this episode of rewind was hosted by prothusha chakraborty 
a second year student of history at St. Stephen's College. The cover art is designed by Lam Boy King Kwang Sai, a third year student of history at St. Stephen's College. And the opening and closing audios are credited to Anu Nugom, a third year student of philosophy at St. Stephen's College. Thank you everyone for joining us today and we will be back shortly with a new episode of Rewind.